This is Channel 253. In this episode of Crossing Division. I was yeah. part of um, something Victoria did when she was on city council, which is Project Peace. Yeah. And, you know, I sat with the police officers and community members, and I thought that we had come up with some really great plans to integrate police more in the community. That works. Mm-hmm. What happened? What happened? I, I have a lot to learn. I'm trying to figure out where we got here. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. Hi, this is Evelyn Lopez. This week on Crossing Division, we are going to talk about something that's, um, well, I'll say it this way, kind of a really uh, bad development that we've had during the COVID-19 stay-at-home process, and that is an increase in domestic violence. And we are very fortunate today to have Miriam uh, Barnett with us from our YWCA. Uh, Miriam is the executive director and very active in all uh, Tacoma activities um, surrounding domestic violence, safety, and anti-racism. So welcome, Miriam. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Good. So before we get started, I just wanted to give you the statistics we have. in this, uh, according to the Seattle Times uh, today, which is what I use for my tracker, uh, as of today, which is June 5th, 2020, we have in Washington state uh, confirmed cases of COVID-19, 22,729. And I have to say over the past um, week or so, um, actually, even over the past month, the cases have been relatively steady. They've been, you know, every day there are more cases, but it is, it is a pretty stable number. Uh, deaths for our state are 1,138. In Pierce County, we have 1,991 confirmed cases and have experienced 83 deaths. And that gives us a um, infection rate for our county of uh, 22.4, which is a little bit larger than it has been previously. And what that means is uh, 22.4 people out of 1,000 in Pierce County have been infected with the virus. Um, But our numbers are good enough that uh, we have been accepted into the next phase of reopening and recovery. So we'll uh, have to see how that goes. But for now, let's talk about... um, the YWCA and domestic violence. So Miriam, one of the headlines that I have seen a couple of times um, is that, and I don't know what the cause is, but you you probably have some ideas. With the stay at home um, situation and um, families uh, being in isolation and probably also because of the um, stress from economic um, situations and other worries, Domestic violence has has really spiked with the COVID nineteen. Um, what do you know about that, and what are we seeing in our local area? So it became evident really quickly to us. You know, with uh, the coronavirus, we all had to pivot, pivot, pivot until we were dizzy really mm-hmm. quickly um, to keep our clients safe, to keep our staff safe, and therefore keep our community safe. And um, one of those is realizing what was happening as a stay at home mandate um, was enforced. Uh, is that it's the right thing to do for a pandemic. Absolutely no question about it. Mm-hmm. It is the worst thing to do for a domestic violence victim because now they're stuck at home right. 24-7 being watched 
having no freedom, having no ability to get in touch with anyone, their loved ones, us, another source that could help them. And so for at first, what we saw was quite a bit of silence. Like it was baffling to us at first. Like why aren't our crisis line ringing? Why isn't it ringing like it has in the past? But, you know, it didn't take too long and victims started getting really smart about it. I think they just kind of couldn't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. So then the next thing that we saw was that our crisis line calls went up exponentially and like never before in the middle of the night when oh. the abuser was asleep. So we started getting very creative. And um, so what we're uh, seeing now is, has we've been in the stay at home for quite some time that um, we're seeing the silence and, and the need increase. So that, what that looks like right now is, you know, our shelter is full. It's always full, pandemic or no pandemic. Um, but the calls that are coming in, and I've answered quite a few of them because we're short staffed right now because of COVID, a lot of people working remotely. Um, so that's given me a new experience. I'm grateful for it. But people are absolutely frantic when they call. They are begging for help. And it is so, so hard to be on the other end of that line. And we can always provide safety planning and resources. But when we don't have room in the shelter, the other thing that's been hard is a couple weeks ago, all of our legal advocates, we have 10 full-time staff, including a full-time attorney. It's been pretty tough on them. They're working remotely and the courts are changing every day how to navigate. It's complicated anyway. So we really need to be there for our clients. But every one of our advocates got to their maximum, which is 45 clients. You can't handle more than that and not burn out. And we care about our staff. So we had to close our legal program for now. And um, we're hoping in a few weeks that we will be able to open it back up. That's the second time. I've been here 15 years. That is only the second time we've had to close our legal department down for a period of time. It's really hard on staff because we can't. And, you know, it really hurts us when we have to turn people away. But um, I'm going to be looking f- for funding to add another legal advocate so that this doesn't happen again. Yeah, I was wondering, can you, um, is there any value in putting out a call for some volunteer attorneys? I mean, I, I think people might be willing to help, but they may not be trained or, um, you know, skilled in this area. Yeah, so with domestic violence, it is very complicated. It's family law, and sometimes those cases not only are complicated, but take a long time. So we we have not been very successful in getting pro bono help mm-hmm. uh, because of the complication of that and the time frame. Um, and also, even with our advocates who do so much of the uh, work with clients that don't need the extra additional help from our attorney, um, you know, it, it does. It, it's about a two month process to train them, fully train them up. Um, because these systems are all very complicated. Um, and so one of our one of our um, advocates is going on to law school. This happens. Uh, it's, it's not that uncommon. It makes me very proud mm-hmm. that we are part of that step to that next stage. I tell them every, we've had several, this is the third during my time here. And I'm like, I hope you come back. We'll be ready to hire a second attorney by then. Um, but because we'll be rehiring her position anyway next month, my goal is to get the funding to hire two at the same time. Just as easy to train two as it is one. Mm-hmm. So um, that is my goal. When I get a goal, I usually meet it. You, <laughs> you are very stop. good at yes. You're very good at that. Well, tell me a little bit about. So um, first of all, I'm I'm interested in the calls that are coming in at night. So I assume that the the abuser is maybe sleeping or not paying attention. So that's an opportunity. But right. um, 
what what can you do for people if they call and they're in um, you know sort of a crisis situation? Yeah, so uh, great question. We uh, one of the first things we the, that the staff do uh, that answer the phones is a lethality assessment, and so it's a very uh, specific format. And in the end, we end up with a score. And based on that score, if they're scoring in a high lethality category, which means they might be murdered if they don't get out, right? Um, we have a confidential hotel site that we pay for them to we transport them uh, and pay for that stay, so that we have a little bit longer to either know our room's going to apartment's going to become available in our shelter, mm-hmm. or we have time to find another shelter for them. Or sometimes they have some place we can just help them go mm-hmm. to another state to a family member, but you can't do that in the middle of the night. Right. So um, we can provide those resources. We also do safety planning on the phone um, so that they just know. Uh, one thing they know is the things that would be helpful to start getting ready mm-hmm. so that we actually help people COVID or no COVID when they call to really decide what is the best time for you to flee. Because it's the most dangerous time for a woman is mm-hmm. when she flees and it can stay that way for up to two years. That's the 75% more chance they're going to be murdered is when they leave very makes the abuser uh, very mad. Um, and so sometimes maybe that is not the right time. Even if we had an apartment available, we might say, well, let's wait till this mm-hmm. um, and just really do that safety planning with them. We're expecting to um, really be inundated. Uh, will be interesting, even with phase one and going into phase two. Um, we are going to see uh, phase by phase what that means for, for victims and as far as fleeing goes, because as soon as they get a little bit more freedom, they have more opportunity. Mm-hmm. To, to leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And oh, I want to add one, I'm sorry, I want to add one other thing that yeah. people might not have thought about because I hadn't thought mm-hmm. about this, but COVID has now become another tactic of abusers. So okay. it's them, if you leave, you're going to die because you're going to get COVID or I'm going to make, I'm going to give you COVID. Like there's, it's just a whole nother new tactic they're using. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, how many, um, people can you house currently at your facility in Tacoma? Yeah. So the one thing about our shelter is that it's all apartments. Mm -hmm. So every family has their own unit with their own kitchen, their own bathroom. This is important. It's not the model that most homeless shelters follow. And I wish they would um, because now we have proof that when you give people their own space, besides dignity, what they, what they end up with is uh, they're able to isolate. And so we did not have COVID in our shelter because people were able to isolate in place. We changed a few protocols. So some of the communal spaces like the laundry room and the food bank room are now locked. It's one, one family per uh, time in there, even though we have more than one machine for the, for the washer and dryer. Um, and then everything's disinfected afterwards. Same with the play yard. So we just changed a few protocols. We were able to keep our families safe. So we have uh, about 78 beds total uh, throughout 23 different apartments. Some of our apartments are quite large and they, they have literally nine different beds. And we do, we're one of the few shelters that can house large families. And sometimes large families is um, one of the, um, one of the outcomes of domestic violence as well. It might not have been the woman's choice to have so many children, mm-hmm. but we, we uh, do have some large families, mm-hmm. um, which is why in the affordable housing that we're building for homeless families, which will be 54 units of permanent housing. It's not shelter, it's permanent housing right in front of the shelter. Um, it's why we have studios to three bedrooms. When we are planning this building, architects will tell you, people don't build three bedroom apartments anymore. Mm-hmm. If you can afford a three bedroom apartment, you can afford a house. Mm-hmm. 
And we said, you don't understand the dynamic. The dynamic for us is that sometimes women have large families. It might not be their choice. And they got it immediately. So we will have three bedrooms in okay. our apartment. So for the people you've had um, in your um, apartments now, have you, have you had any problems with um, COVID um, spreading there? Or have you been able to keep them um, safe and um, healthy? Just changing those protocols, just tweaking them slightly makes a little bit more work for staff because they have to unlock the food bank door. They have to unlock the, um, the laundry room. They have to do all that extra disinfecting. But it, uh, we have not. I'm so grateful. Had yeah. COVID. Yeah, because, it, you know, I mean, you're in a situation that is not unlike some of the other. I mean, it's not the same as an adult family home by any means. But anytime you have a concentration of people living in proximity, you know, if, if one person gets sick, it's very difficult to keep it from spreading. So, so that's really an amazing job well, you've done. And um, it's been a very interesting, almost um, case study, mm-hmm. because when COVID broke out, we actually did have influenza A in our shelter. Oh. We did have clients going to uh, urgent care because they had the flu. We had mm-hmm. staff out because they had the flu. And they had the flu bad. Mm-hmm. And with every single one, as COVID came on, we had tests done. And every single one, I held my breath because if one shelter staff tested positive, we've just lost our whole shelter staff. Yeah. Right. Because they, they work in close, close proximity. Um, so we did have a number of people tested and every single test came back as influenza A, which wow. it's, it's sad that people are still sick, but it's the best. But when we changed protocols, influenza A left our shelter. Are you going to even have that in our shelter? So are you going to keep those protocols in place now? Because that would be a nice way just to get people to not be sick from work anyway we, we, we definitely will for quite a while mm-hmm. and then we'll have to reevaluate it's a little harder on staff because the human interaction is um it's it's important yeah you know for for victims and for staff and for instance we have three babies um, mm-hmm. in our shelter one born while they were here and um you know, our staff love to hold the babies and they can't hold the babies right oh, now. Yeah. So we'll look forward to having maybe a little bit more um, room for a, maybe some sort of a, we'll slowly um, change, try changing things a little bit, but we're waiting to see what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not, we're not opening up to um, the public yet in our building on Monday. We're starting to open up to staff. We're staggering staff. So there's no more than 50% staff in this building because we want to be ready to be able to pivot quickly this time if um, if phase two doesn't work. Right. And with all the, uh, frankly, with all the protests, I'm a little bit worried about all the um, all the close proximity that we're seeing in our community and in every community right now. No, I, I agree. I mean, I, I have thought about going to some of the protests and I have just talked myself out of it because, you know, both my husband and I have some underlying health conditions that make us more more likely to not do well if we do get it. And you just, um, you have to factor that in. Totally. Yeah. Well, tell me about the new facility that you're building. Um, and first let me say, give us some background because this was a super ambitious plan. (laughs) I mean, you really kind of decided I'm going to go for this thing that I don't know that anyone else has done anything like this, at least not in our area. Yeah, I'm probably crazy. Um, well, that's okay. Um, <clears throat> let me give you a little bit of background. Yeah. When I started here 15 years ago, um, almost to the day, um, the shelter was in the building I'm sitting in right now that was built for us in 1927. And the top two floors were made for single traveling women to be safe at night. So very tiny rooms, shared kitchen, shared bathroom. And in 1976, we became the first shelter in the state of Washington. 
And those same rooms now housed families. Mm. And when I got here, that shelter was quite run down. It really, I didn't want to spend the night there mm. and I'm not in crisis. And so with my upbringing, the way I was raised by my family, um, you know, everyone deserves to be treated equally. And if I didn't want to spend the night there, why was it okay for other people? And so, um, and then our pipes started breaking. So I had some support from the building. The building said, yes, you're right. So let's yeah. just break pipes and have humongous floods. So everybody will realize that this building is too old to house families. And um, after the second big flood, pipes always were breaking in the shelter, uh, usually when no one was in the bathroom. So they weren't discovered, you know, it was always middle of the night, Murphy's Law. Mm-hmm. Um, I use that as um, kind of my um, platform to say, you know, we can't wait to even build a shelter. We've got to do something. We have to do it quickly. And so the Wilsonian apartments came available mm-hmm. across the street. And this is 08 as we were entering the deep recession. And in fact, I think that's why the building became available. I think it needed to um, needed to be sold pretty quickly. And I looked at it and it was perfect. It had, you know, studios to large, these large apartments. And so we launched a $5 million campaign. Well, it was a $4 million campaign that became a $5 million mm-hmm. campaign. You know how that goes. And we moved that shelter in 2010. And that is when all the light bulbs went off in all of our heads Mm -hmm. um, because all the apartments were adopted by interior designers. They're absolutely beautiful. People heal differently when there's beauty. And so that's when I made a commitment. If we're going to have a beautiful shelter, right? And then immediately following that, I did a $1.2 million campaign to redo the old shelter. Mm -hmm. So one whole floor is for legal and once we've been able to really expand our children's program and they're beautiful. Like, why would you have a beautiful shelter and beautiful program space and then not have beautiful housing? Mm-hmm. And so I kind of promised all my staff, we have a partnership with Pierce County Housing Authority. So I have two housing staff already. And I said, you know what? I'm not leaving until every, every client in every program has beautiful space. So that man, I had to keep my word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's how this housing project started. I never dreamed it would be a $23.2 million project. Um, I had open heart surgery three years ago, almost to the day. And my family begged me to um, retire after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, well, who in their right mind is going to come on board and raise $23.2 million to make my vision come true? Like, I can't leave. That's not even a possibility. Um, and so here we are, we're building, we're onto the third story. And um, we are pretty much on time, which is amazing. Um, we were, um, we are essential. Uh, business so our contractors could keep working during um, the shutdown and um, and at first it looked like that it was it didn't matter because we were going to lose our supply chain as if only essential can keep building there's not enough of supply chain demand but we were able to navigate through all of that and here we are Uh, we we haven't had um, we might be a couple weeks behind but that's the most right now and that's what happened no matter what. Mm-hmm. Everyone who builds something this big knows that. Yes. So I think we're doing really well. We only have $250,000 left to raise. Really? That's mm-hmm. amazing. Yep. I'm not even trying right now. I'm going to wait a while and, <laughs> and then just close out that campaign. Well, what is, um, when do you expect that the building will be finished? Well, it has been January. Okay. And now it might be February. It looks, I drove, yeah, I drove past it the other day and it actually looks pretty good. I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's not one of the projects and we have a few in town that is sort of just sitting there 
and you think yeah. what's going on? No, this, this was busy. We're going up quick because um, they're using prefab walls. Mm. So there's a lot of screaming with the crane on getting them situated. Mm-hmm. I had to shut my window here. Yeah. During the end of the day, it gets a little quieter. It's pretty noisy. <laughs> I feel a little sad for the neighbors. <laughs> but, um, but it's also exciting to watch a building go up. Yeah. I hope it's exciting for them too. <laughs> so tell me more about the housing that is going to be provided there and yeah. who's it's for, who is it for and what does it look like? How, how will people qualify? Yeah. So 75% of the 54 units, we have 55 units, but one will be for a full-time property manager. Mm. So 54 units of um, deeply affordable housing, um, 75% for homeless families currently homeless, which includes people coming out of our shelter who would be homeless mm-hmm. if not for housing and it's permanent housing uh, with views so um, our architects have done a lot of perma- uh, affordable housing projects, and they said this is the first one they've done on view property. Okay. So that makes me very happy. Um, so we'll have these 54-unit studio to three-bedroom. Um, the building, you can't tell by looking at it behind me, but uh, facing downtown, it's a, it's a C-shape. Mm. So it has an open middle where we'll have a playground, a community room, an outdoor space. And then a parking lot beyond that. So we we divided the part the the land we had in half because we couldn't afford underground parking, mm-hmm. which was my dream. I had to give that one up. So we'll have surface parking on two levels because of the slope. Mm-hmm. So we're a slope building um, right now. Where they're going, we we from the front they're three stories high, and from the back they're just starting the first floor of what is actually the third floor of the building. Right, because <laughs> they have to step it up the hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. The other 25% of the units are for, um, so the, so the homeless housing is 30% AMI or less. Mm -hmm. So you might not even have any income. You can still live there. Okay. And then the rest are 50%. So still deeply affordable and for special populations. So for instance, perhaps vets, perhaps disabled, Mm -hmm. you know, there'll be, um, uh, other, it will be a little bit more open. Mm -hmm. And then we have hired a property, um, management company mm-hmm. quantum and they are experts in managing affordable housing and they will actually do the lease up for us because we this is a one and only yeah we're not affordable housing experts we don't need right. to be we're going to hire right. the affordable housing experts and they'll be able to follow all the rules and regulations to make sure we lease up um following um all those especially since this is um what we call a lie tech project which is a low income housing tax credit project okay about half of the money raised came from tax credit. So we have to follow a lot of very specific regulations. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're doing that by making sure we hire the right people who already understand how to do that. Mm -hmm. That sounds good. And then um, if, uh, if, if someone is able to move in there, uh, is there any um, time limit on how long they can live there or it's just like any other apartment if they qualify for it? As long as they qualify, it's permanent housing. Um, the bo- We have two separate entrances. One is on Broadway and 4th, the corner, mm-hmm. and that's the tenant entrance. And then straight middle of the building on Broadway is um, actually a 4,000 square foot condoed out part of the building. Um, so it's not part of the tax credits. It's owned by the YWCA. Um, and that is our expanded counseling center. Mm-hmm. So we are building out a, a really specific place for free counseling for um our, our housing clients, but also domestic violence victims. We have two therapists right now. We'll be able to expand to four and build it out for them instead of putting them into space that had to then be fit for them. We'll be building it out specifically. And one thing that's going to be really beautiful in that space is 
once again, beauty matters. So we, in the budget, put money for art. Um, and Claudia Redenauer mm-hmm. um, from Exia Tiles, she is doing um, the most beautiful uh, tile mosaic above the door facing Broadway for everyone to see. Good. And then there's an alcove that clients will step into before they, they're buzzed into the counseling center. And that's going to be um, a heron. One side has to be all the oh, yeah. kind of things. Yeah. <laughs> but the other side is beautiful relief heron. And then as you walk in, it's an underwater scene that oh. also is tactile. So the kids have something to touch and to see and to feel like is magic about the space. Yeah, Claudia's tiles, um, Ixtia tiles, they're beautiful. It's just beautiful work. So excited. It's been super fun to work with her to get, um, to, to express what we're looking for and mm-hmm. then to have her vision come to fruition. So um, that's probably what I'm most excited about. There's some other art mm-hmm. features throughout the building, but that one, um, you know, just marks our building has um, giving something back to the community too. Yeah. People can see, not just clients can see. No, it's, that's very special. Well, well let's uh, take a short break here. And when we come back, I want to uh, ask you a little bit about not just um, what else the Y is doing, but, you know, sort of what your plans are as we, you know, move through 2020. Perfect. Okay. Thank you. Hello, I'm Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, We Art Tacoma. This episode of Channel 253 is sponsored by TAPCO, Pierce County's original credit union. You might already know that credit unions are not-for-profit financial cooperatives with a focus on enriching their members instead of big bank shareholders. TAPCO is committed to serving Tacoma and Pierce County, just like Channel 253. That means when you put your money there, you put it back into our community. Think about it. You go to the night market, you go to the Grand, and you shop at local stores. So why not keep your money local too? TAPCO offers the products and services you need. Home loans, auto loans, checking and savings, online and mobile banking, all with lower fees and better rates than big banks. Plus, TAPCO donates to local causes and supports our community in other ways, so you can feel good about helping your neighbors. To learn more about our local choice for all of your banking needs, visit tapcocu.org. My thanks to TAPCO for their support of this podcast and Channel 253. Hi, we're back. Hey, before we get going, uh, just a quick word in support of Channel 253 membership. It is a great deal. It is $4 a month. You can also pay on an annual basis and um, you would be part of supporting our efforts to bring Tacoma Stories and Pierce County stories to life, especially these days. I feel like if we say that all the time, especially right now, knowing what is going on in your local community is really important. So please support Channel 253. Sign me up, Evelyn. Tell me how to do it. I, I, I will sign right up. Okay. We'll send you some info. Thank you. Um, good, good. We would love to have you. Uh, so Miriam, tell me a little bit right now about, you mentioned that you're going to work on funding for a, another um, advocate in your legal office. Correct. What what are your other plans um, to, you know, continue building on the program and how do you go about fundraising right now? Because I know your really big luncheon event, which is a huge fundraiser, you know, was canceled due to the coronavirus. Well, let's start there. Okay. That's, pretty, that's pretty exciting to talk about. 
So, um, yeah, our fundraiser, um, both rags, uh, got canceled, um, right after it opened, which was the absolute right thing to do. I totally supported that, mm-hmm. um, to keep the community safe, but also our luncheon, you know, I didn't expect this to last so long. We moved it right away from April to June and clearly that wasn't going to work. And so we decided just to pick a three day window and just do an online event called the lunch in L U N C H dash I N instead of luncheon E O N. And, um, you know, we, we kept our goal from our budget. So last year, our luncheon netted 148000 So we put in our budget 145000 because we're a little conservative that way. And so that was our goal. And um, I used two videos. We, use, we do client videos, but we use two from two past years because we couldn't even do a new client video right now. And, you know, I decided instead of um, doing a virtual event, because I'm pretty tired of you know, I'm on a lot of Zoom calls. Mm-hmm. I don't really want to attend events and have to listen to a keynote. I just, just make it easy for me. Mm-hmm. So um, we just made it easy. And we got our keynote from this year, Rachel um, Louise Snyder, to move to um, next year. So our event next okay. year is already planned, May 12th. We got our our deposit for her move forward. The Murano let our deposit move forward. So we didn't lose any money, which mm-hmm. just makes me so happy. And then we just asked the community to continue to support us. We still use the table host model, mm-hmm. um, having our table host send out our email. We did a lot on social media. We didn't stop until we met our goal. And now we've actually exceeded our goal. So we're over 148,000. Um, so we're over what we did last year. But here's what's really beautiful. Last year, that 148,000 included $15,000 that we raised in our silent auction that we typically have at the event mm-hmm. and our raffle. We didn't do either of those things. Once again, I want to make this super simple for us. We're all exhausted. And so it's actually raised quite a bit more money when you uh, think it was just great donations. You know, that's, do you think that, do you think this might change some of the nonprofit fundraising? Because I have to say, I have um, developed a strong dislike of not the luncheons. I'm happy with luncheons and breakfast because they're very short. You know, you come in, you do it, you leave. But the galas, the dinners with that dessert yeah. dash and Asha, <laughs> I hate them. I hate them. And, and, and so, and I, and I really don't go to them very much anymore, but, yeah. um, but I keep thinking, you know, there's gotta be a better way for these groups to raise money. Do you think having to, you know, get creative like this will, will start some people thinking about other options? You know, I, for me, that's a wait and see mm-hmm. simply because um, I think right now it's new. And people are wanting to be supportive. Yeah. I'm one of those people. I'm just donating everything I possibly can right now because I know it's really, really important. And I, so I think the community feels that urgency too. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that's going to sustain mm-hmm. over time, right? I'm not sure that next year people go, okay, fine. We don't need to yeah. hear a keynote. We don't, you know, yeah. we'll just give you money, right? So um, I think that's, for me, that's a little bit of a wait and see. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you what has changed for the YWCA. When we had to go remote, we had to buy laptops and webcams and licenses. And we spent about $35,000 that wasn't in our budget to get our staff safe and out of here. Um, but we are going to continue our legal program and our counseling program. So it took us a while for our counseling program to find a confidential platform mm. that was HIPAA compliant, but we found it. And so we're able to um, do counseling um, like we are talking now. And our clients are very satisfied with it. We're, we're surveying them afterwards. They're very grateful. And here's the beautiful thing about that. Let's say a client's in our shelter and they start working with one of our therapists, okay? We all know that's a relationship that's not the easiest to, to find. 
And often uh, you might, it might take some time. My own personal experience is, you know, it, you have to have the right person. Yeah. And so you've bonded now with our therapist and now you leave the shelter and you move somewhere mm-hmm. and you no longer can come here. Well, now you'll be able to continue seeing the same therapist, no matter where you move to. And it also takes away the barrier of transportation. Right. So for our legal program, where we're just using um, phone and computer, not a platform like this, um, because it's working, uh, same thing. We'll, we will always now keep those platforms active for those that it works easier for mm. than coming here in person. So for the time being, um, like I said, we're not going to be having clients back in the building. We'll have some staff here doing the same thing they've been doing remotely, which is connecting with clients. Um, the one thing that um, we would love to see start up again is our therapeutic children's program. Kids don't understand social distancing. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure when that will be. Our children's program staff have still been creating weekly projects and we bring all the supplies up to the shelter. So we're providing activities for them, but they're doing them in their own space. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll be happy when we can open up our children's program and our teen program again. And then our support groups. You know, we had four nights a week. We had very successful support groups. That's a lifeline for people. Mm-hmm. And that's not quite the same experience on Zoom. Our right, platform, right. So we're, we're trying to figure out how to do that safely and, and probably smaller groups spread out more. We do have space here, which is nice. We do have some big meeting rooms. So we're still reinventing ourselves a little bit, but I will say the platforms moving to remote, we never would have probably done. It was expensive. It wasn't in our budget. We're always right. busy. Who has time for new things? And then we were forced to. And now we realize part of that has become a blessing. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good takeaway. I know I've seen... Um, comments from people who I know with disabilities who have sort of said, you know, well, finally, you know, finally something is, is now focused on accommodating the fact that I can't easily get in person here or, or make use of that. And so I think that is actually a net gain for all of us that we now, you know, actually have been forced into figuring out how to use some of these tools to, contact people and do business with people um, if we're not face-to-face. That, that is a good thing. I agree. Yeah. It's good for us. Yeah. At the same time, I can, I can imagine in, in a, in a therapeutic arena, um, you know, the ability to be face-to-face and to touch and to give a hug and to, you know, be comforting, you know, you, that's essential too. Well, I should add, I think most of the experience that we're having with our therapist is a therapist to adult. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they're doing the platform with children yet, where oh. our therapists usually see the, the adult and children mm-hmm. so that the whole family unit has support. That makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. What are the, um, you know, since I would say your your completion of your funding of the um, housing apartments is actually well within reach, what what comes next then? <laughs> well, to no, be honest, um, not that I want you to work forever, but that, that is, so I realized something about myself. I've been in nonprofit 35 years and um, I have to have a vision mm-hmm. um, and then I have to meet that vision. And then what I've learned about myself is I'm not a status quo leader. So I don't like to just keep things going once my vision is met. And I will be 65 by the mm-hmm. time this opens. And remember, I had open heart surgery three years ago. My family wanted me to quit. Mm-hmm. So the commitment I made to them is that I would retire when I um, when this housing is open and underway. So not immediately. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but I, I do, I, I will be retiring. This is my last big project, um, at least for the YWCA, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully I won't jump into something else this big again, because right. I've been married 40 years Monday, and I yeah. think I have to honor that my husband has been very patient. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely times when you have to decide, you know, now is the time when my focus is on my family. That's true. That's true. Well, tell me um, what you would like to see the organization do or what messages, you know, what will you do to get the organization ready to transition to some possible new leadership at some point in the, in the future? Well, one of the things I think that we all have difficulty with, and it, um, I, I work again now at the attorney general's office and, and have worked there for many, many years. And one of the things we tried doing over the course of the years I worked there is a certain amount of succession planning, which is yeah. not hard to do because you've got a big office of people. So you've got people who are 10 years, 20 years younger who are moving up and you can sort of say, you know, this person has the skills and the interest in this. Let's make sure they get the training they need to be able to move into more, um, you know, positions of responsibility. But how do you, try to prepare for um, organizational change in a nonprofit setting? Uh, so, you know, it dep- every nonprofit's different. Um, and I've seen some where there has been a successor named, um, which I think is can work really, really well. Um, we don't have that situation here. Um, there's not somebody who has said, I, I want you <laughs> um, So it's up to my, my board and my executive committee. And I have... Um, you know, given them a timeline. And so um, I think right now they're considering uh, hiring a firm and doing a national search. Um, you know, I'm just here to do what they asked me to do. I've provided some, um, I have a whole file on transition and, uh, planning. Uh, it's something I actually have coached before I, mm-hmm. I did some, uh, some consulting. Um, and something I'm very, very interested in. And I can be, it can be really successful and, or it can go really south. Yeah. Um, so I have a lot of opinions about it, but in this case, when it's me, I need to, I need to step back a little bit mm-hmm. and, and let my board guide it. And I told them I'm here for you, whatever you want me to do, I'm willing to do, but I don't want to step on your toes. It is your process. Right. Um, it's not mine. So, um, so we're just at the very beginning of that journey and I'll just have to keep in touch with you about it. Okay. I'm sure it'll be a learning ground for all of us. The hope is that we've named some, named my successor while I'm still here. Yeah. I really like the opportunity to introduce them to funders and donors, the staff to really help um, them in any way that they, they would like help. I'm mm-hmm. also not here to offer help if they don't want it. Sure. Uh, I've been in that position as well. So yeah, it is always a bit of a delicate dance. I, I've done the same thing both where I'm coming in and replacing someone, especially a really loved leader. Uh, and, um, and that's challenging. And I've also been, you know, a, a well-regarded person who's left and then sort of watched in dismay as things, yes. you know, didn't always change for the best. Yes. I, um, I have that experience in Bellingham. I ran an agency for an arts agency for almost 12 years Bought a building, remodeled the building, paid for the building, you know, kind of similar, left, and they just started going through executive directors like mm. they used to here at the YWCA. Yeah. And um, they end up selling the building. Like, oh. I was just, I mean, I, I one of the reasons, I, to be honest, I moved to Tacoma is because I just couldn't handle that. Yeah, no. Handle it's, watching what was going on there. It's heartbreaking. Thought, this is yeah. my time to leave. Yeah, absolutely. And so that, that brought me to Tacoma in the year 2000. <laughs> 
So I'm grateful for that. No, it's been, it's been good. Well, tell yeah. me, you know, you have been really active in Tacoma, active in the community. What are the, some of the things that you see that we need to be doing or that we could be doing to kind of, let's say, take our current events and do better at our anti-racism and, yeah. you know, that, just better, just doing better at, yeah. at working together effectively. That was actually what I was going to mention. I was going to say one thing we can do better, uh, especially as white community members with privilege, is use it mm-hmm. and step it up. And so I'm making a commitment um, to do just that. I will continue that commitment for as long as it takes. Um, there's a couple groups forming, one through the American Leadership Forum, um, and I'm going to offer my time um, and whatever expertise I can and my resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think now is the time if we're going to really see this as a tipping point to get the tip to happen. We can't just continue to do what we have been doing. Right. Even if we'd be doing a little bit or a lot, we still have to do a little bit more or a lot more. Yeah. And um, that's an invitation that I'm accepting from the black community that is asking us white allies to step it up. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's a commitment I've been making. And there's a few things I'm, I'm working on right now. Um, as far as advocacy efforts, um, you'll, you'll actually see one on Facebook soon. Okay, good. Um, where I'm trying to get some sign-ons of white allies to a letter that I've written. Um, because I know one voice is fine, but many voices are better. Mm-hmm. Um, I always say the same thing. One mind is great, but many minds are better. So um, the reason I'm waiting is because many minds are better. I have sent this out to some community members to get feedback. Mm-hmm. And I'm waiting for one last person. Okay. <laughs> ah, hurry up. Because I'm ready. Uh, so I sent them an email and said, okay, just so you know, I'm mm-hmm. waiting, but I'm ready. <laughs> My goal is today. Um, so I just, that's the invitation I think I'm giving myself and I, I would ask of others is that our community and our nation need us right now. And whatever that looks like for you, we can learn together. We can make mistakes together. If you have funds, you, we can donate together. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, I was already just distraught, like many people, mm-hmm. um, about George Floyd and the other massacres that we've seen for many, many years of Black people. And then I learned of Manny. I know. And I learned of Manny right before all YW Zoom meeting where all staff were on this call. And we had an agenda. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, we have an agenda. It's a tight agenda and I don't care. Right. We have to talk about this. You know, and then I attended the vigil that night. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it, it, I, I don't have words. I'm so appalled. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought we were, I thought we were better. I know. You know, this is Tacoma, Washington. I thought we were better. And I was yeah. part of um, something Victoria did when she was on city council, which is Project Peace. Yeah. And, you know, I sat with the police officers and community members, and I thought that we had come up with some really great plans to integrate police more in the community. That works. Mm-hmm. What happened? What happened? I, I have a lot to learn. I'm trying to figure out where we got here. I and, think, yeah. Uh, I think this has caused a lot of us to ask questions because I thought the same. I thought, you know, thank goodness I live in Tacoma where we seem to have a police department that, you know, they're not perfect by any long shot, but they don't seem to be filled with hate, which is what right. we see in some other places. That's right. I don't know now. I don't know. I mean, one of the things that causes me the most concern is um, 
you know, if we don't have the strongest local newspaper anymore, but it's no. the newspaper that brought this story to us. That's right. But what if we lose our I newspaper? Know. Will we know when something happens or will it be kept from, you know, what the hell is going on in our city that the citizens are not being told when very serious things happen? I have so much the same concern and it has caused me to even lose sleep and to lose some faith, to be yeah. honest. Mm -hmm. um, but last night, uh, the mayor came on live mm -hmm. at around 10 o'clock at night and I waited. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I felt she had great courage. I agree. And she called for the firing of those four officers. I never thought, I emailed her today because mm -hmm. I never thought that would happen. So quickly, at least. And then I looked at Facebook um, when I was watching the reception area quickly. And there was a post about how the police union have just, I didn't read it. Because nope. the person didn't repost it because it was so nasty, but just came out. I read it. Totally against her. It was uh, not only was were they against her. I mean, I think, okay, if you want to raise the point, as they always do, you know, there hasn't been an investigation. We don't know what the evidence is. Why are you jumping to conclusions? Fine. Okay. I don't have a lot of use for that, but I get it. But the, their tone in that letter was absolutely disrespectful to Mayor Woodard's. It was disrespectful. And that is not, she does not deserve that because, no. you know, I mean, I, there are things I disagree with her on. There are things that she disagrees with me on, but I'll tell you what, she loves Tacoma and she loves yes. the people of Tacoma and she's a straight shooter on that kind of stuff. And yeah. yeah, this is, if the police think that is the tone to take to cause this to be fixed, Tacoma's going to burn. They, I was sorry. just going to say, they just lit the fire. Yep. Yeah. We're going to burn. Yeah. And that's just not okay. Well, and now the, the county executive has called in the National Guard for protests today down yeah. at the courthouse. What the hell? What? I, I mean, there's no basis for that. There's no basis for that. So We're better than this. Well, and, and you know what? As a community, we have to stand up. Yeah. We really do. And we can't let the, um, we can't let that negativity and that, I, I'm going to say fear mm. work in this community. Yeah. And, you know, before I even knew anybody was coming out against Victoria, and I just know they would because <laughs> here we are humans. Mm. Um, you know, I emailed her day and I said, you know, I have to, and believe me, I, I was having my own doubts. Mm -hmm. Like because I went to the vigil and I heard the family say they're not getting answers. And I'm like, what is happening in the city? And um, when she came out so emotionally and so powerfully, I emailed her this morning. I said, you just set an example for all mayors everywhere, mm -hmm. for all mayors everywhere. And I'm telling you, if you believe what the mayor said last night was right, then support her. Let her know, because you know who's letting her know they don't support her? Everyone else. Right. And as a leader, leaders need to know we're holding them up mm -hmm. as well, that we've got their back. It can be really lonely. So I just encourage people to... Um, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to get farther as a community, we're going to have to do it differently. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have to find ways to um, do the right thing together. Yeah. And you're right. It's a wake up call for those of us that thought that things were, you know, operating in a way maybe that they're not. And you're right too, as a white person, I need to stand up and say, this is what I think, and this is what I'll support. And this is what I will not support. And including with my tax dollars, you know, right. I mean, Absolutely. I don't, 
our city, the largest budget item is the police department. Right. They have a contract that specifies that anytime any police department in any city in the state of Washington gets a salary increase, Tacoma salary increase will will top it. Tacoma really? will all, yes. Because there was a percept, there was the belief that it's so hard to get officers in Tacoma. No one wants to work in Tacoma. So we have to pay more money than anyone else in the state, which I think is is bull. I think that's not yeah. true. But it's like, no. well, okay, it's time for a change. We don't it have to do it that way. Yeah, it's time for a change. And we're going to need a lot of transparency a to lot. get answers. Yeah. We really are because it's hard to craft a way forward if we don't have answers. I agree. And it's hard to come up with, with better solutions if we don't have answers to help well, things and, and we won't trust if we don't have that transparency. And, right. the, and trust is going to be vital. Yeah. Boy, Tacoma is, whoa, we are right at a precipice, right? Like We're, we're at the moment. I, I like to live in hope, but there's a lot to be fearful of right now. Um, it's going to take all of us who really, really, really care deeply about the city. And I know there are a lot of us who do. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I find special about Tacoma. I found it special from the day I moved here. It's yeah. like, you know what? Tacoma's like, lived here my whole life, going to die here, but welcome. Glad mm-hmm. you're here. Right? It was never like, keep out. This is our Tacoma. No, what I always say is Tacoma is just right. It has all of the pluses of living in a big city, but yep. all of the pluses of living in a town too. I mean, it's just a really right. special place. Let's keep it that way. Let's keep it that way. Let's make a commitment. Okay. Well, Miriam, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's just, uh, it is always a delight, I have to say. And I I am so proud of all of the work that you do and that the Y does. I mean, I just think you're a shining example of how a nonprofit should work and how, you know, really, frankly, how one person can make a an amazing difference in uh, in everything around them. So thank you. Well, like I will say again and again and again, no one does anything alone. So I am blessed to have had some great people behind me. And hopefully there will be some great people in front of me as well. Good. All right. On that, that's our week 12 coronavirus in Tacoma. Good talk. And um, let's see where things go next. We are in for a very interesting summer, I think. Yes. All right. If you have ideas for future episodes, let us know. You can contact me on Twitter at true underscore Tacoma or send me an email, truetacoma at gmail.com. Thanks. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. Crossing Division is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounders B Team, Citizen Tacoma, What Say You, and Gimme the Mic. This is Channel 253.